0: Thank you all for coming today. This is a recording of what should be about the episode 282 of the Coot Street podcast. I'll do the silly introduction because he cries if I don't in a moment. But before we do, <laughs> I know they know, need no introduction, but I'd like to introduce to you, if you're unfamiliar with him, our guest of honour, Michael Swanwick, who's been, who is directly responsible for the topic of this podcast. Uh, having written a, an interesting introduction to his new collection of short stories, that of course you should race out and get right away, we also have here one of our very favorite people in the whole wide world, Kids Johnson, Aww. who has been on our podcast before, so she should be known to you. Mm-hmm. Thank you
1: I know what I'm in for.
0: <laughs> then there's our neer well professor person Gary. <laughs> Yay.
1: Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yay.
2: And that's Jonathan, who's from Mars.
0: <laughs> no, almost, almost. Oh yeah.
2: Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> ah, I should have written this down. Are we ready? Here we go. Ah, let's go. And now, coming to you live from mid Two in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary Kaywolf with very, very, very special guests, Michael Swanwick and Kids Johnson on the Coot Street Podcast. Yay! yay. yay. We're back.
1: Muppet flail
0: here. Uh, yeah, we should do the Muppet flail. It's telling that Siri just told me she didn't understand. <laughs>
2: um, well, one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about on this podcast, and we've all talked about it in advance, was with short fiction. We have two absolute masters of short fiction, both of whom have books available now. Uh, Michael's latest book from Tachyon is called Not So Much Said the Cat, and if, if you didn't read The Dog Said Bow Wow, then he's, he's working his way through pets, I guess. Um, and, and another
1: thing, said the hamster. And another
2: yes. thing, the next one, right?
1: <laughs> and, and, and
2: Kidge's astonishing Lovecraftian, the dream quest of Velvet Bow is, it is in the book room, isn't it? It's here, actually?
1: About that, said the pony. No, <laughs> actually, it's sold out. So, um, oh. And I'm not even sure you can get it at Amazon right now. But the Kindle is, of course, the electronic books are available. So, so buy that now and then buy the paper book later. But if you do want to get the Offset special proper
0: version, buy it early, Mm -hmm. which people seem to be doing. The thing that brings us here really, as much as anything, is to talk about the art of short fiction. In the introduction to Michael's book, he talks about, and you might talk about now a little bit, about the way you went through and you studied, published short stories to try and work out how to write and tell stories. Yes, I think we all do that. Mm -hmm. How did that, when did you really start paying close attention to... Structure and craft and those sorts of things.
3: Uh, when I decided I wanted to be a writer, <laughs> so, uh, as a reader, I didn't care at all. I can watch movies and I don't. I don't look at the structure, um, and mm. uh, I, ca- I can go to an art museum. I can I can stare at, at, at a Paul Clay painting for a half hour and just never bother to worry about how he put it together. But for sh- but for fiction, you need to know the mechanics of it. It's like knowing it's it, it's like the uh, it, it, it's like the, engin- <clears throat> the engineer needs to know the mechanics of the bridge that he's designing. Yep. And uh, it, it can be a very, very, very beautiful bridge, but underlying that, there's a lot of very pragmatic matters.
1: Okay. Yeah, actually, I... and I'll step in and just add to that. Um, absolutely um I, I started writing fairly late in the game and I was a very non-critical reader but I just intuitively liked good stories more than bad stories mm-hmm. um, so after a while I realized that I might as well start analyzing why I liked the stories I did and I like like Michael have tried really hard not to learn anything about movies because if I know about movies that'll be that'll be my last thing I actually enjoy <laughs> and it'll be gone stripped from me by knowing too much about it so yeah I think at some point as writers, um, we do start analyzing stories very, very carefully and with great, great precision to figure out how they're pulling it off. And from a craft standpoint, not from a lit crit or, mm-hmm. you know, what is that, What is the Marxist reading of this story kind of way, mm-hmm. but much more in a, so why did she pick blue instead of indigo way?
2: And that's ex- that you're, that's a good point because that is different from the way we, in, in academia, Uh, analyze stories and so I wonder somebody who both teaches academically uh, and looks at a story from a writer's point of view how do you convey that to someone who's a non-writer I mean one of the things I always try to convince my students of and it's true about uh, it's true about fiction it's about movies it's about music is that everything that happens is the result of a decision
1: yes and that
2: fascinates me
1: there's a, an example I give students, um, and I'll have to stop using it. It's my 2016 model, and after this, I'll have to have a new one. Is the statement "the curtains were indigo," which a lit crit person will read, and they make comments about, you know, sort of what sort of class statement is being made with indigo. The history of indigo as a very expensive and rare and precious dye has implications, things like that. Um, a writer may make that decision because she likes that it's three syllables. Um, a writer may make that decision because she wants vowels. She wants soft sounds right at that moment, not blue, which is a plosive. Um, so, so the approach is so different. And we, while I may be aware of indigo as a class marker when I, at some point in the writing, I also may be just saying indigo. I may or I may just be tired. I may have looked up, noticed my curtains and said, no, I think I used wisteria last page. So let's use indigo this time.
3: You know, John Gardner once said that he would chop off the ear of one of his characters in order to get a better balance in a sentence. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, exactly. I used to cut the little joint, the f- joint off everybody's little fingers because it was, um, it was about a half a sentence long, and it was a character note, and I used it so much that I had to stop using it. That's my early fiction people, juvenilia. Don't read it. <laughs>
0: Do you think studying fiction that closely for a reader can actually ruin the
3: experience? It could, but I don't think they're going to. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's not going to be fun for a reader. For a writer, it's a lot of fun to figure out how it's done. Sure. Um, but unless it's a very unusual reader, they'd rather take that time and just pick up the next book.
1: Right. I think that's a repetition. Um, I tell One thing I do with my graduate students is I set them a, an interesting but challenging story like Samantha Hunt's Beast's. Um, which was a Tin House story. And I have them read it five times in a row without reading anything else in between. It usually takes them days because they read it the first time, they're like, well, that's really weird and cool. And the second time, they're like, well, that's really weird and cool. And the third time, they're like... I'm really kind of sick of these characters, and I'm also kind of sick of, you know, it's like, why these stupid deer ticks in this story? Mm -hmm. And by the fifth time, they are now down in the weeds. They are past trying to figure out what the story means, and they are now trying to figure out how the story means. And that's something a writer is willing to do. But most of the time if we read, and I don't know how many of the people in the audience here are repetitious readers, that they read like, I have books I've read probably 70 times. And so even though I never set out to critically analyze them, nevertheless, I know them line by line, sentence by sentence. I can repeat whole chapters. And I I internalize some of the lessons without ever internalizing the story Mm -hmm. or without ever consciously saying I'm going to internalize this. So it is a challenge, and, um, and it could be boring, but I have a feeling the readers who can do that are at heart writers who maybe just haven't started writing yet. Well, it's, a, it's a difference between I
2: think somebody explained it to me once is that a, a, a writer looking at a story is, is like a mechanic looking at a car wanting to know how to build the engine, and the reader just wants to know if it drives comfortably and gets you there.
3: Absolutely true.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, we're done. Yeah. Uh, the oh, no, sure- no,
3: no. we'll <laughs> in the, bar.
0: <laughs> the surely the bones of the story become—I mean, I find when I read—become clearer as as you reread. That that's one of the the benefits and joys of rereading. I am, and this is completely at Right angles to this podcast, uh, the subject. But for a second, speaking as you do about a writer's craft, how do you feel about speed reading? The two of you, because I know people who speed read, and I can't see how you get the very kind of rhythm stuff that you're talking about. Repetition.
1: I speed read, and I have to read things like ten times to really internalize them.
3: Yeah, uh, I can only speed read things I don't want to be reading uh, as I as I'm reading. Yeah. Okay.
1: Which well, is a lot of things. Yeah. Student papers. <laughs>
3: yeah. So, so the, the story that we've
0: chosen to discuss today, to dissect a little bit, to talk about the craft of, is James Tiptree Jr.'s classic 1973 novel, novelette,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, the Women Men Don't See, which appeared
2: in FNS, FNSF magazine. 73 or 79? 73.
1: 73? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I looked it up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I can start with a couple of questions about that, because one of the things I do find myself doing, almost unwittingly, and I've done it with both of your stories and novels, is... Is want to know how that, how did they do that? You know, exactly what got that effect. It happens to me all the time with Gene Wolfe stories. It happens to me with, um, <clears throat> but it doesn't happen with Isaac Asimov's stories. And one of the things I noticed at the beginning of The Women Men Don't See is she's made a couple of decisions. She's narrating it from the point of view of this guy, Don mm-hmm. Fenton. And the voice has to be, we have to realize this is a clueless character, but it can't be a parody, it has to be a real narrator and not a joke. And she decides to do that in the first person and in the present tense, which is something that seems to be really trendy these days. But in that story, it seems surprising. In in, in In
1: 1973, it wasn't trendy. And Mm -hmm. in 1973, science fiction, it wasn't at all. So that's a big decision on her part to Mm -hmm. do that, to pick the male character, who is in some ways the least involved character in the plot. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has something to do. All he has to do is react. Um, and he reacts poorly pretty consistently through the story. So we are with the most irritating character in the story for the entire story.
3: But the irritation even starts before you meet the character. Right. Because the first person, present tense, is an irritating form. Now, That's new true. writers, unpublished writers, are in love with it because they think this is immediate and it'll make the, the story more real. It does not do that. The, no. the default... Storytelling mode is third-person, past tense. It's what we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So putting it in first-person, present tense immediately subconsciously cues us that something is wrong, something is off, something is uncomfortable, and that uncomfortable never goes away.
1: Right. I mean, just to go through the very first paragraph, I see it's a very grating paragraph. It's full of information we don't need um, and it's full of uh, words that we are not, we don't particularly like, especially if we are reading it in 1973. Mm-hmm. I see her first while the Mexicana 727 is barreling down to Cozumel Island. Who cares who the airline is? It does give us a moment of authenticity that we, we are now we believe this is a real thing. But most of us reading this are not. We don't care, and in fact, we don't get to Cozumel. We don't get to where they're trying to get. I come out of the can which is already a jarring word because now we have to like stop long enough to interpret, oh, he's that guy, ah, great, and lurch into her seat, so he's already gawky and he's mm-hmm. that guy, saying sorry at a double female blur. The near blur nods quietly, so he's not even seeing the people in the room, which is, of course, pivotal to the entire story. Mm -hmm. He's embedded everything we need, or she has embedded everything we need into this very first paragraph to read the entire rest of the story. The younger one in the window seat goes on looking (laughs) out. She's not even bothering. I continue down the aisle registering nothing, zero. I never would have looked at them or thought of them again. So then we move into this conditional. And that's the first paragraph. Everything that happens is- We're only thing.
3: halfway through the first paragraph too.
1: Oh, that's where mine ends. Oh. So, yeah, okay. But this but then there's like a long sort of <laughs> uncomfortable. So the whole thing hmm. is this estranging, alienating, discomforting introduction to a character from inside of him in his moment. It's actually really uncomfortable.
3: And I want to take a, um, go back and take another look at the blur. Yeah. And it's in the, second, in the second sentence, it's like a double female blur, the near blur nods quietly, the younger one goes on looking out. And I remember when, when the first uh, professional bits of advice I overheard from real writers uh, in a convention in the 70s when I was still unpublished, I heard uh, uh, two name writers talking and one was thinking of doing a Star Trek novelization and the other had done one was explaining to him how you did it and he said, <laughs> and he said when you have Scotty when he first appears you have him talk very strongly Scots with lots of words like Sassanac <laughs> <laughs> and then after the first two uh, pages you, you, uh, you, you stop doing that and you just have him speak standard English for the rest of the time and the reader has imprinted at the beginning and hears that all the way through and mm-hmm. if you go away from this story for 10 years and don't reread it, you'll remember that blur. Everybody remembers that the women are blurs. And you tend to think that it's all mm-hmm. the way through the referred to, to blurs. They're not. There are only a couple of times late in the story when he notices like a small, a chin or a mouth on, on the woman. But they're never again referred to as blurs. But that, but that blur slur mm-hmm. carries through the entire story.
1: hmm and it's interesting also because um, that is precisely what this story is about. But you read it, and as a writer, I admire the craft of that because I read it, and I'm like, he's using a word that on your first read-through, you're thinking, oh, it's an imprecise word. You know, he's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's about the moment that we are in yeah. in this first sentence, this first paragraph. So, and, of course, they are blurs because he's like, probably a little tipsy and so forth. But in fact, it is also literally, well, not literally, but it is in fact true that this guy, Don, really cannot see these well, women. Well, yeah, it is literally the, the title. title of the story. It is I mean, the title. I've taught oh, yeah. the story, and
2: at the end of the story, students will ask, well, where did the title come from? I'll
1: just <laughs> read the
2: opening again. Because, and that's the advantage of rereading, is you...
3: But if you look at the title, that title does a lot more work than most titles. Right. Mm-hmm. Most titles, we're hoping to have an evocative image that will make people able to remember the story.
1: Mm -hmm. We just want them not to put it down.
3: Yeah. We we want a title that looks interesting enough that they'll try reading the story, Uh, a a title that after the story, if they've loved it, they'll be able to remember the story by. But this title does a lot more. It gives you the entire message right here. It tells you that this is about something important. And especially at that time, 72, 73, that was kind of at the peak of the discovery of second wave feminism for most women uh, so they were thinking about it and they were looking for tools to, to, to think with and I suspect most women who saw that title went yes I understand that part right away mm-hmm. that is an astonishing title it's one of the great titles it is, of the genre it's one of the
1: best titles in the genre um, and, and a brilliant title that sustains the story. Um, if the story had another title, like um,
2: Blue you know, Waves Over Montana, Loving Miss
1: Parsons, or so, whatever you gave it, you know, whatever title you gave it.
2: But it's a, it's also a title that, without uh, any other prompting, can easily be misread. You can read that as a traditional science fiction title. Right. You can read that the way you could the way I did as a kid reading the title of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. It turned out to be a great novel, but it wasn't anything like H. G. Wells. So you, you think, okay, there could be some science fictional thing here where <laughs> women are... Maybe they are
1: invisible. Maybe they're like women's... You know. Exactly. And even as, if you're an, uh, an ingenuous reader, you can even read through the whole thing thinking, well, where, where are the invisible women? Mm-hmm. But, but we don't. We're, um, the story written when it was exactly. is actually quite explicit about it in a way that a 21st century story probably could not get away with because for us it would look very heavy-handed.
3: This also shows again this beautiful craft she has. She has the title right there, and before you can really wonder about it long, they introduce the blur and the double blur mm-hmm. and the blur and the other yeah. one and and that tells somebody who 's actually going to wonder about that title well, what 's going on the
1: women men don 't see first three words, I see her
3: mm. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> and then
0: counteract it with. The, blur-, but she's the sure. blur, the blur. Yeah. Right,
1: right. So we are seeing the conflict already, um, and it's like we're really hammering on this first paragraph. Partly because any good story, you can hammer on at this level for every single thing. But this is like a million. It's a novelette, people. That's why I said day million, right? Um, but uh, but the first paragraph is where everything is set up. That's where you set up the voice. That's where you set up the accents. You know that, that Scotty Scott, Scottish, um, but that's also where you set up all of the expectations.
3: And she yeah. does such a wonderful job there.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: It also implies, I think, a story that she doesn't actually tell. You know, right. Because the, because the implication is the story. The story will be about Don Overton and how these women come into focus for him. When in fact, what you come to appreciate is that his story is completely irrelevant to the story at hand. That it's really their story and what
1: they're doing. Yeah, he doesn't
2: cause anything to happen, really, in the story. He doesn't.
1: He's, he's, a, he's the thing I told my students never, ever to do. He's, a, he's the asshole witness. You know? <laughs> so he's two irritating things together, one of which is being just a witness of this strange story going on outside of his ken, but also he's a jerk, so why, why do we want to be in the point of view of a jerk? So my students don't do this, but James Tiptree, she gets away with it. So, Yeah.
3: And he's a really interesting character. Because the first thing you do is he commits a series of minor rudenesses. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he comes out of the can rather than out of, out of the lavatory. You know, he's, he lurches into the chair and he sort of grunts sorry and so on. He's, and and, um, he, and he, he does all these negative things. But he also um, he's presented as being surprisingly competent. He sees and perceives things other than the woman. He's, uh, mm-hmm. he's got a mysterious past. He sounds, in fact, a lot like James Tiptree uh, Jr., the male uh, okay. persona's mm-hmm. um, past. And so... There's a, um, a dislikable half of him, but there's also a likable and even admirable half of him. Well,
2: I think this is one of the things that struck me about the story, even when I read it the first time, is that he is, he, he is an asshole, but he's not a parody of an asshole. No, uh, uh, no, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, another novel that came out about the same time was Marilyn French's The Women's Room, which was full of just the most odious men in the world. and you could. This is not that. This is, he's, he's odious, but he's believably odious. And in a way, that's more disturbing than just simply creating the crude villains that you'd get in some of the mainstream feminist novels of the time.
1: Well, and I, I do want to push back just a little bit yeah. on that because I agree with you. Let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about character um, because the character, um, he is odious, agreed, mm-hmm. Um and he is also, I, and I wouldn't, wouldn't have said the word admirable, competence, everybody exhibits competence in this. There are no fools in mm-hmm. this story. Although occasionally he misses very obvious markers, he is, um, there are no, nobody does the really dumb thing. Even walking through the mud to get to the water is not a dumb thing. That makes sense in the context that they are finding themselves in. But um, he becomes, as he becomes unhinged, sorry to spoil it, the one of you in this room who didn't read it, but he becomes like sort of unhinged as things move off the true line of the, what he expects the world mm-hmm. to operate like, and then as he starts, the women come into focus, how he expects women to behave. So he reassesses what he thinks of Girl Scouts. He starts being, viewing them as sexualized, which he didn't at the beginning, and stuff like that. But then as things get out of his control, he becomes an irrational asshole. He, becomes, he starts to do things that make zero sense. He starts to do really, really bothersome things is when he's like obsessively like trying to get the skiff for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you imagine that Don Felden, Feldman Fenton, Fenton. Is, a, uh, is maybe spooky, he's a little CIA-ish. Maybe that's important, but that's never explicitly stated that you know, he's getting this for God, gun, you know, God and country. He just, all of a sudden, he just can't stand these women are doing this well, he can't g- stand it yeah.
2: because the, the, the competence, I think, is How a can major he be thing. He's doing this, yeah. right. And, and I think, think, Michael, you're right. He's competent, but he he's gets highly. more and more disturbed at the women's competence. He can't handle this. He can't handle the fact that Ruth is not panicking right. or at the end of and the so story. So he
1: sexualizes them as a way to counter the fact that he's having to come to terms with the fact that they're doing everything he's doing.
3: Every time that he looks at one of the women, he judges her in sexual terms.
1: Yes, or mother terms. Mm-hmm. Or, mother, or mother terms.
3: But, you know, especially like, you know, look, looks up at her and says, no, nah, she's not hot. Right. Yeah. That's what he sees. Well, what relevance is it whether she's hot or not? She's just a woman <laughs> in the same plane as him. But that's how he sees all women. That's how he judges all of them entirely on the expectations to what degree they live up to what he wants.
2: I, 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 no, I had a quotation because his. Yeah, because
1: I actually, I mean, that, the thing that I noticed about this is that despite that, because you're exactly right, it's not a monolithic um, and it's not a static interpretation of women. So early on, he's uh, he talks about um, Ruth being uh, her eyes snapping open. She's sane as soap. What could be more housewifely than sane as soap? That. Phrase is, to my mind, James Tiptree at her very, very best. Later on, we, it's like we keep seeing him using the language of the household, mother hens, um, but then he starts to use more and more pert buttocks and stuff like that, but he moves from one to the next. And then he moves to, they're a little creepy and crazy, all of a sudden he's interpreting them as crazy, but he moves through all of the major stereotypes of women, one after the other. Meanwhile, slightly tainting each with the other too.
2: The the passage I was going to read, which is, I just copied it down on my phone, uh, because he uses a wonderful phrase, which I don't think sounds like him, but it's a wonderful phrase anyway. He talks about, (laughs) talking about uh, Ruth, the obtrusive recessiveness of her. Yes. Which is a great phrase, but then from that fairly abstract phrase, he goes on to say, the defiance of her little rump eight inches from my fly. For two pesos, I'd have those shorts down and introduce myself. Oh, I know,
1: I know. It's
2: like he turned. He looks like he's going to say something intelligent <laughs> and abstract, and then...
1: And then, man, I would just, I would just rape that chick. Exactly. That's <laughs> why I said, man. I mean, it's essentially what he's saying. It's like, she's, she's bugging me, so I would just rape her. And actually, as you watch him go through this, like, well, I guess we dangerous males, you know, like, men aren't dangerous. It's like, well, I guess we dangerous males can't be trusted with you ladies, you know. And that's, that, the arrogance of that is so masterfully managed.
3: Well, there's a, um, a, a real low point for him when he and Ruth are off together, and they share a blanket. Mm-hmm. And he finds mm-hmm. himself getting aroused by her, and she manages very deftly to turn him off. And then he says, I always picture this as a little chuckle, so believe it or not, I slept. And it's like, you go, this is an, a tale I'm going to tell the boys back in the office how I didn't rape
1: her. is it that not, we just fell asleep. She had her pants on all night long. Or at the very
0: least, she didn't swim before my wonderfulness.
1: Right. It's, so it is really interesting noticing that, and it's actually also really uncomfortable. And I, while I was reading this, I was like, I don't want to do this, because I kept thinking it is impossible for me to separate the fact that this is a woman writing as though she were a man in the 70s from the fact that I know that she is a woman writing this as a man in the 70s from a male point of view. So it's like, how am I supposed to read this? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be – I, would, would I, in 1973, call me Joe because I'd be a guy probably, um, reading this in 1973, um, would I be reading this and go, Don, actually, that was a, that was a chivalrous thing that you didn't rape that chick? You know, or what would I be saying? What would I ha- – how would I have well, read it's it? It's
2: important to keep in and mind, in 1973, almost everybody thought this was a male writer.
1: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So how do you read it when you know – when you think it's a man versus when you think it's a woman writing it? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, author intent – well, we're not supposed to talk about that. Author intent is – we're the ones who write this stuff. You know, author intent is everything to a oh, story. Well, this
3: is very important. This was Tiptree's payback for – or rather, it was Sheldon's payback for becoming Tiptree. Mm-hmm. And this story is told in a male voice. It's a very male voice. Mm-hmm. And it is written as if by a male writer. And this was one of the, one of the stories that came along that made all the women in science fiction – Fall in love with tip, as mm-hmm. he liked to call himself in fanzine letters uh, old old harmless you know, post sexual tip it was a man who got it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he she couldn 't have gotten oh, she, she could not have had the full effect of this story writing as a woman because male readers would have dismissed that, going, oh, you just don't like being raped. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, nice, nice. what they would have said is, well, you know, guys aren't really assholes like that. Not all men, they'd say. Yeah, all, and not so, all men. Yeah. yeah it's like this guy Don, he's kind of a, he's a real dick. I wouldn't be that guy. You know, missing the point that this is, that it's, that this is mm-hmm. a very much, at least in their, in their minds, this is inevitable. This is a necessary part of the Parsons, the Miss and Mrs. Parsons, you know, survival strategy. Mm-hmm. Is there anything
2: to the choice of a a character name like Parsons?
1: I thought that was interesting, too. Um, What do you think?
2: (laughs) Well, I thought, when I heard Parsons, I just thought she was, like,
3: looking for the most ordinary, common um, story name Mm -hmm. for a harmless woman possible, like a, a possum kind of a name.
1: Possum and Parsons, exactly. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, and I think that Ruth, you know, Ruth, of course, you know, where you go, so will I go. Um, Althea, the daughter, you know, who has this beautiful poet, poetic name, um, this plant name al- almost. But I, but I never really feel with tiptree that the names have the sort of heavy symbolism no. that a lot of us use. Mm. I'm looking at you. No, you're and... absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. No, I,
2: no, I, I. I...
1: I feel like there's a lot of
2: symbolism in my names. Um, but you were telling about the rhythm. I mean, Don Fenton. Just rhythmically. Don that's Fenton. a maxim Don Fenton. Don Fenton, yeah. man of mystery. And Don, exactly. right. And
1: course, exactly right yeah. You know, Don, of course, being, you know, sort of Lord, you know, Spanish, you know, Don Don Quixote, you know, it, it has to do with, you know, being high enough in the food chain that you get uh, an honorific. So his name is itself an honorific. Mm. Um, The Esteban is often called Captain Esteban. He also merits an honorific. The ladies merit honorifics, but they merit the standard honorifics. Um, And eventually he slips those away, and he only uses them when he's feeling angry again.
2: Let me ask a question which is relevant to the story, but it's also relevant to a decision you have to make. I mean, Alice Sheldon could write gorgeous prose. She could write very balanced, beautiful, but she couldn't quite do that in this voice. So, how do you choose to give up what you know you can do uh, in order to be consistent in a voice? I mean, I think Robert Browning could write beautiful uh, poetry, but he also wrote those monologues in the the voices of really awful people. (laughs) But but
3: Browning could not have written
2: this story. Well, no, (laughs) and and this is (laughs) not a
3: story that could be written in in beautiful because beautiful doesn't just. There's nothing beautiful in it. Right. Uh, I think the really the center of the story is is at one point. When Ruth is trying to explain mm-hmm. them to uh, to mm-hmm. Don, and she says says we don't hate men, and they don't. Mm. Right. That's the whole center of it, no. and that's the reason why he's only half awful, and the other half is, is kind of a uh, you know a, a, a CIA kind of kind of competence. You know, you know, man who goes fishing in the Quintana Roo um, is is they want to establish it's it's not. They're 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 not fleeing, um, like war criminals. They're fleeing ordinary men. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, it's That's devastating. Yeah.
1: And as far as uh, I mean, the the exact quote you're talking about, she, he says um, he uh, just accused her accused her of being a lesbian, a professional man hater, <laughs> yes. right? Um, because she decided to have a child without a father. Um, and she says, lesbian? With my security rating? No, I'm not. And he says, well, whatever trauma you went through, these things won't last forever. So he's basically saying, whatever you're feeling, um, you'll get over it. You know, Don't mm. tie your tubes. You might want to have a baby later, because that's what women do. Um, but, and she says, there wasn't any trauma, Don, and I don't hate men. That would be as silly as hating the weather. And, of course, they have just been rained on. Mm. They have been grounded. The ship, their plane is ruined. They think they're dying. Um, That's how bad the weather is.
0: (laughs) But it's also that sort of distance to the abstract as well. It's like basically you're this thing that we we live under. Mm -hmm. And
1: Don immediately brings it down to personal. He says, I think you have a grudge. You know, So he's already blaming her for not wanting to play. And he says, you're even spooky of me. Now, this is a guy who was just saying, mm. man, I could have raped her, but I didn't. I get extra credit. Just
2: to correct myself a little bit, he, there are some elegant turns of phrase in her speeches when Bye. she's talking back to him. And what might be the most famous phrase from the story is, uh, we survived by ones and twos in the chinks of your world machine, mm-hmm. which was – it's even the title of A Study of Feminist Science Fiction by Sarah Lafano. And it says everything in, in a few words that, uh, th- that she wants to convey. And it's, it's, it's poetry. I mean, it's just a yeah, poetic Yeah, and just image. to
1: point to craft again, um, it's brought in again at the very end. You know, so this is, this is a craft decision that she made. She's like, I made my point. Maybe I didn't make it sufficiently. I need to hit that beat one more time before we exit the story so that people remember that. It's almost the last paragraph. Um, and she puts it in italic to call it out for us. Do not forget this is the important part, which is a trick I use all the time. So it's like I always hit word for word the same thing. In her case, and she's writing in 73, she's doing it by calling out the fact it was said before directly with the italics. In my case, I just do it. I just sim boldly, and I figure people will get what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But I'm also writing 40 years later.
3: Mm. And what makes Don Fenton such a... Uh, a clever and useful construct is that half-and-half half quality. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's not, not just a jerk. Every <clears throat> His judgment is consistently bad. Mm-hmm. His judgment of everything is wrong. Uh, but he is a reliable narrator. His narration of what happens is accurate. And at the end, when he's there getting drunk, because he cannot reconcile what happened mm. with... Um, with his judgment, with, 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 with what should be, he manages to come out with that, with that quite famous last line, two of our opossums are missing. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful line, and that's not a value judgment, so he's able no. to deliver it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, Michael, I think that's exactly right. He is, not, he is, he is 100% reliable because he, he, without being aware of it, he tells the truth always, even when it's very unflattering. Yes. So he's uh, um, and he's he doesn't seem to notice that sometimes he's saying things that are like really really offensive vile things, but he tells us so we trust that he's told us everything. He's not held anything back. He hasn't lied. He's not spinning anything. Um, so his discomfort at the very end is fascinating. And I just, and the other thing I want to call out is that because I teach a lot of animal studies mm-hmm. and animal narratives, is one of the most common. Uh, sort of things that happen, animals are always been used as othering agents or minimizing, lessening, bestializing agents. Um, women are often related to animals. Mm. So there's lots of fiction where women are called cats or they're called lions or they're foxy or they're this or they're that. He has taken a primitive species with a naked rat tail and way too many teeth and he's, mm-hmm. you know, opossums. Their only survival strategy is breed a lot of them because they, they're hopeless at taking care of themselves. And so he's, uh, she, Tip Tree, has, and Don, the narrator, have taken the instead of any of these more standardized female sort of well, animal. It's, it's, rhythm, not, it's, it's not
2: just breeding a lot. It's hiding out and. Right. A they, I mean that's
1: that's your two strategies when mm-hmm. you're a possum. You hide, you have a lot of teeth which don't actually do you any good, and you roll over and you pretend you're dead. And and so that last sentence to my mind it's like you could it really eliminate the entire rest of the story and if you had the context of that last sentence it would say mm-hmm. everything you needed to know about this story.
2: You're right. I mean, you've got me thinking now that the 20th century is full of cat ladies and cat women and, and cat women. Foxy women and horse like women.
1: But, and, but, know, women yeah, and, but no, the
2: know. 19th century is full of snake ladies.
1: Yeah, uh, so, yeah, the white worm. And so,
2: oh, yeah, the white worm. And Anyway, that's a Lamias. separate thing. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: what, what about, here's the other thing from 1973. I don't know who bought this story for FNSF. What did that, that would have been Ed Furman. Furman would have bought so it. 73 Furman. So, okay, right. Uh, and he must have bought it knowing that this is. It fits in with science fiction. There's a sophisticated understanding of how science fiction works in this story as well. And, uh, and we, we know now that Alice Sheldon you know, grew up reading Pulp Magazine. She knew her way around it and this sort of thing. Her, her presentation of aliens is pretty, um, in some ways, conventional, other than mm-hmm. the point we're looking Very at. Very conventional.
3: Yeah. yeah. This is, we You're haven't mentioned the aliens suits. at all yet. No. no. yeah, okay. and well, it, no. I
1: want to, yeah.
3: And it's, it's, it's simply not the interesting part. It's, no. the, it's the enabling device.
1: Mm-hmm. I, one thing I noticed when I was rereading this, which I hadn't thought of when I was younger, is that the aliens could have been replaced by the fae. Yeah. You, could mm-hmm. ha- you could have had you know, the, the she saying, uh, showing up and they're like t- doing whatever it is they're doing, and these two women saying, take us. We don't care what happens to us. It's got to be better than this. And it could be anything, I mean, any mm-hmm. possibility, because as you say, it doesn't matter that they're aliens. Yeah. Except but, it does because of the uber-creepiness of the aliens. Well,
2: they're creepy, but I think they're also... They're, they're meant to be standard issue because she wants to de-emphasize this is not, an, this is not a first-contact story, although in a way it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's
2: not what it's about.
1: Mm-hmm. It's an, really an incredibly grim and dark story. And it's, um, I wrap my head around the fact that they're, they are... So the, the two of them alone, this is preferable. And they're taking possibly... An infant with them. You know, Mm -hmm. that nine months from now, it's going to be three of them living on some strange planet, you know, where the air feels funny and they can't get enough protein. They don't know that they won't be put in
3: zoos. They have no
1: idea, and yet it's better. But
3: even if they are put in a zoo, that's better.
1: Right. Which is really, really unsettling. Mm.
3: I mean, it's an
0: incredibly dark story, really. And interesting in the way the perspective is, is manipulated that you only really realize it as the whole thing unfolds. I mean, it's beautifully structured,
1: I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, one thing, thinking about it structurally, um, when I'm teaching uh, structure, and I'm a, I tend to teach structure because I'm deeply interested in it, um, and I'm always talking about how the initial premise of the story, the initial goals of the characters, often has to be completely obliterated by the later mm. developments in the story. And this story does that. We start out, and it's like, well, we have to get to this place to do this thing, um, except we're crashed, and now we have to get back to our original storyline. We have to get back to where we can get to the place where we're going to do this thing. Except they, and then all of a sudden, things go, take that hard, hard right turn, and all of a sudden there 's the morning that mrs. Parsons Ruth wakes up and um, she 's staring out at the the thing, and you realize from that moment on that she has decided that she can make this work these strange lights in the night she can sort this out, she can make this work and At that moment, the story changes Gate so completely, um, and that 's when he starts to get crazy and, and he 's already been a little sexy at her sexy times. But that's when he starts to go nuts and he starts accusing her of things and he starts, like, trying to get under her skin. It's like, oh, you must be a lesbian. You know, all of these ways he's trying to get to her because she don't, he is completely irrelevant at that point in the story. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a story where the narrator becomes irrelevant to the story halfway through.
2: That's interesting. I've never thought of that either. But I, I
1: you know, to think
3: the, well. the, the story is a subversion of the stories that it is. You know, it starts out with, as an adventure story. Mm-hmm. There's a plane crash. The pilot has a broken leg. They've got to walk a mile to the shore. They're looking for water, and there are fires over there. But they're probably... Gators. They're probably... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, they're, and they're, they're alligators, and we can't go near the fire because those are probably poachers, and they'd kill us. This is a very standard, exciting right, adventure exactly. story, False and it or subverts or that. Again, yeah. it, it, all, all of that... It just takes all that and uses it for her, for her own purposes.
1: And then she throws it away. I love that.
3: She throws it all away, and then there's a science fiction story. And that stays a science fiction story up until the end, when he's sitting in the bar thinking about the meaning of it. And the aliens just fade to insignificance. And all that matters is, um, is that image of, of the two of them disappearing you know, off, mm-hmm. off, yeah. with the, off with the aliens or the she or the alligators or whoever will take them and, and give them a, a better
2: deal. And all the science fiction becomes irrelevant. So right. it, it changes genres three times within a right. short story. Right, amazing.
1: And that ending mm-hmm. is so great. And I hadn't thought of it before you said that, Michael, but with one of the things that's fantastic about the ending is that what bugs him isn't that there are freaking aliens in this world. What bugs him is two women got out. And I think that that makes him insane. And that whole last sentence where you're like, who, you know, what, two of our opossums are missing, and you're like, so what's that supposed to imply? Because I'm always looking at a story and saying, what happens in this sentence after the story ends? And it's like, that. it's hard to tell. Does that mean, we're, is he now afraid that the aliens are going to come back? A lesser writer might have said that. They're going to unite the aliens. They're going to come back. They're going to obliterate all the men. It's going to be like the opposite of the white plague. and It'll be awesome. It'll be a utopia. <laughs> Oh,
3: sorry. Well, <laughs> I, 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 think, I think what happens after the ending Is that it just bugs
2: him it For the rest, of his, the life rest life. of his life Because women didn't behave The way they were supposed to yeah. So does, the, does he change? I mean this is one of the things you're always Talked about in fiction classes Is that the character has to change I think that a character not changing is
3: every bit as significant as a yes, character yes. changing, and I think that 's what happens here it's it 's yeah. a harder move it 's
1: more of a uh, master move to to have a character right. um, a character knowingly not change he's mm. not he knows he 's not changing he's, del- he's eliminated mm. the part he can 't cope with, and he is only left with the fact bitch wouldn 't give in you know mm-hmm. that 's what he 's left with is these women just how could they not want us <laughs> how could they not want to be here with mm-hmm. us us i 'm a nice guy. <laughs> You know, and that's what he can't get over. So he really, the fact he's not changing even a little.
3: And there's two opossums have escaped in a world of billions of opossums. Right, uh-huh. and it
1: bugs him. And
3: it bugs him that two got away. He can't even let two get away.
2: I know. And there's something odd about opossums also because it occurs to me that this is, a, it, it, in some ways, it's a very sophisticated and very subtle story. But, but uh, Alice Sheldon would write more direct horror stories Under the name raccoon Sheldon. I mean, I'm speaking of the the scroof. No, the raccoons and the opossums seem to be related here somehow.
1: Yeah, they they share the same sort of annoying, Mm -hmm. slightly oversized, you know, get-in-your-trash, you know, ecological niche. Mm -hmm.
3: I suspect she must have known some woman who basically were opossums, who were living quietly, keeping their head down, and creating... Uh, uh, just a little world for themselves that just went under the male radar. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that was the beginning of it, just just developed beautifully.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but and one of the things, I, I mean, I admire many things about this story, although I also am made very uncomfortable about it. I agree with you that this is a story, it's about that that making the secure space where you can live your life. And certainly... I've known enough lesbians, you know, when I was young, um, by the early 80s, I, I knew plenty of women who had built this, like, world that was isolated. You know, it's like, and they knew men. They worked mm-hmm. with men. Many of the men knew that one or the other, you know, one or the other was lesbian. Probably both. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's like, and they would take, um, and, and they would live these inoffensive lives, staying out, trying not to let their landlord know, because then they get thrown out of their place, but apart from that, just surrounded by friends who in a similar situation. And reading this, it's like um, those women, it's like really easy to think inoffensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, they, they're benign. You know, it's like they just were like making their own little safe space. But in fact, these women are nurses these women are, they have teeth. These women know how to do everything. They fish with unfamiliar, you know, mm-hmm. rods and reels. They, she catches evidently a three-pound mackerel with her bare hands or something. <laughs> it's like, how hardcore is that? Well,
2: and that goes back to the competence theme. which And the competence was a big thing in science fiction through the 70s, yeah. mostly because of a hind because of the whole tradition of people who can well, what get stuff done, basically. and And... and Women characters who could do that were still fairly uncommon in the 70s. You would see some in, in, in Lee Brackett. You would see some in C.L. Moore. But to some extent, that story was, uh, uh, this story was um, revolutionary in a way that I don't think people no. saw until years later. Well, I think that's because this story,
0: amongst other things, <clears throat> does cast a incredibly competent pair of women alongside someone who thinks they're incredibly competent. And that contrast is part of what makes it work. I mean, they give you that sort of classic adventure plot you were showing, or you were mentioning earlier, and how that's all very much kind of, here he is, he's the hero, he's, he's Travis McGee, you know, that yeah. kind of a character, yeah. right? And But you, you suddenly realise that he's all, it, it's, it's this shadow play in his mind. He's actually out of step with the entire world around him, really, and doesn't understand consciously what's happening, and needs to hide it away behind it once he's gone because this crack in the world that opens up in the story isn't tolerable to it for his, to his worldview.
1: They aren't really hanging a lampshade on the women's competence either. It's there, and Don yeah. notices mm-hmm. it. But I, I was thinking about this, thinking a 21st century story these women are competent, and they just get their job done. They don't make a big deal out of it. They no. don't look hot while they're doing it. They don't have low necklines. You know, they're just doing a job, and they're getting it done very, very well. And it's and. It's not made an exceptional thing, the way it is in Hollywood, the way it is in so many stories. It's like, look how awesome my female character is. You know, she's like, she's Mm -hmm. an assassin who does this and that and the other thing. And she also knows Taekwondo. And she she can, like, tie a fly in the dark. You know, that's Mm -hmm. how hardcore she is. But we don't see that. These are just women. And the implication is that you have no idea what every woman, two of our opossums are missing. Any of our opossums could leave at any time if given the chance. Uh,
3: I actually think, I actually read the, the ending differently um, because, again, he sees that two of our opossums are missing, but his judgment about what that means is, has obviously got to be wrong since judgment, everything uh, <laughs> is, is <laughs> wrong. Right.
1: Why he would be right <coughs> in the last Why sentence. would he
3: be right at the end after a yeah. few drinks? Is, is yeah. And Tiptree <laughs> was also really good at not... Telling us what she was really up to, mm-hmm. and just leaving the story there until you thought about it and you went, "Oh my God!" And this is a horror story. Mm-hmm. And the horror story is not that two of our opossums escaped; it's yes. that the rest did not.
1: They're still here. They're still. They're still, still, here. They're they're still, still sleeping here, next to one. And
3: they're still sleeping next. They're, they're still, still living next to Don Fenton.
1: Right. Can I?
2: I'd like to introduce a, a slightly different question because we haven't addressed it yet. But uh, obviously, Alice Sheldon knew her way, her way around the Yucatan. She'd written a bunch of stories about the Quintana Roo. What about the racial attitudes in this story? Oh, there yeah. is a pilot who's described as Mayan and virtually just dismissed.
1: Well, uh, he's a, by he's God. A, he's, he is constantly. The, uh, Don can't let go of the race. You just yeah. like, oh, he's stoic like a Mayan. He has a face like a Mayan. He, he's uh, hardcore like a Mayan. You know, it's like it's, he cannot let go every single, oh, obviously she'd want to have sex with him. He's a hot Mayan, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she,
3: he, he, and, 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 and this attitude, actually, we, a, a kind of a, an improving. You know, this is a good Mayan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. This lasts up until he realizes that there's a woman sleeping with somebody, and she's not sleeping with him. She's sleeping with the Mayan. And all of a sudden, Mayan goes way <laughs> down. <laughs> And right, exactly. you know, be, To be a Mayan is an inferior thing. <laughs>
1: right, I think that's true, and it's that moment. Up until that, he's like all very prepared to be, mm-hmm. you know, super, oh, yeah, you know, our brown friends, you know. A credit as soon to as his race. Was, right, a credit to right. his race. But the minute that he realizes that, um, that, and that's when he starts to sexualize the mom because mm-hmm. there are only two women in the room. One's going with the hot other guy, so, well, I mean, he has to prove something. He has to prove something. And we see that. There's, like, incredibly deft language where she's ta- He's actually talking about how, um, I think it's Anthea mm. is fishing, and he says, well, she can handle my tackle pretty well. And it's like, really? Really? <laughs> I mean, that is-
0: Well, that is that kind of. You know, John D. MacDonald kind of language. is a thing Right, right. Good. right,
1: yeah. She can handle my tackle anytime. time. I never saw a woman tie a fly tighter than that in my life.
0: <laughs> I'm curious, it's not a, a craft question, but do you think you could write a story today that achieves the same level of social commentary that this one does? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I yeah. don't
3: seem to see them being written. I, I, it was much more difficult for this story to be written in 72 than it would be to write its equivalent today, I
2: think.
1: I, yeah, I, I think that one, one of the issues is that it's actually a, quite a heavy... It's a, very, uh, it's a very subtle story. It's also quite heavy-handed. It's like it's pounding on
2: mm-hmm. the message.
1: Um, and I don't think we could get away with pounding on it the way she's doing. And it is subtle. I mean, that's not to say that you're like, oh, please. But she's taking more time than... I think we could now Mm -hmm. to to make her message, and I think our message would end up being more nuanced because we would have to. I mean, because this is a lesson of nineteen seventy three. This and this story back then was a very forward looking story. It's still important. Well, in a a
2: sense, uh, I think Karen's Roy Fowler tried something like that with a yeah. story called What I Didn't See, which, which deals with high, with lowland gorillas, actually. But sort of it's, it's much more understated than this in terms of using science fiction elements. It uses virtually none, as a matter of fact. But the idea of the attitudes among women is sort of transplanted several decades later and still, I think, works in that story.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think we might use it differently. It may, and it's also possible that we would, be, we would be dealing with the next generation of you know what is it, What what would this possum story look like now? How would I write this story in a way to make it compelling?
3: Yeah, you it's have to have questions. you have to have the insight. She had the insights back then. That yeah. were, um it, it helps to remember the times. I remember I was yeah. in college back then when she was writing that, mm-hmm. and I was talking, and, and, and that wave of feminism was coming up, and a lot of my friends were trying to figure out just what this feminism meant. A lot of these female friends. Mm -hmm. And I'd be talking to them, and they would be explaining things to me. And I would go, well, I can tell you're telling the truth, but I'm having a a really hard time understanding this because it's contrary to everything I've ever been told. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so she was way more perceptive in Mm -hmm. 72 Mm -hmm. than even most feminists were. Mm-hmm. Because she was working out all, she had worked out the mechanisms uh, of right. oppression in such beautiful detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was an extraordinary accomplishment. But there are extraordinary people alive today who can <laughs> who can do the equivalent.
0: Mm-hmm. Because we are coming towards the end of our time, I just want to ask quickly: Do you think? I mean, my view this, Do you think this still talks to us, or, or does it belong in its time?
3: Mine first. Oh. Okay. Uh, it sure talks to me. I, I I read it and I say, this is a cautionary tale, Michael. Don't behave like Don. <laughs>
1: don't be Don. Don't, 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 my don't, don't
3: be a Don. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: and, uh, and
3: I see this behavior in men. Yeah. And um, I try really hard not to do it myself. So. Okay.
1: Yeah. Kinch? I would just... Um, uh, I think it does speak. I think we have to move through the fact that it, it's paced slightly differently. Um, there are other decisions that she made that we, we don't make anymore. But to me, the main thing is, um, is yes, it's cautionary. And as she, as she has the characters say, you know, it's like we are always essentially one election away from all being killed. You know, it's like we are—we are essentially one, one election away from the Republic of Gilead, where you know, one big mistake away from somebody saying, "You know what's wrong with this world? Women have the vote." Yeah. You know, read that too. Yeah. One of
2: the—but you've—you've taught. I mean, as I said, having taught this, I think, and you must have taught the story also. You're teaching it to younger students who aren't concerned with or aware of. Forty years of progress in short story craft. Mm-hmm. They're seeing it as a new story, and and, and they're seeing it as and it, it's relevant in the same way a Catherine Mansfield story is relevant or a Chekhov story is relevant. It's new to them, and it's, it it does what it does very effectively. I should probably
0: sorry, that's
2: all. We, should, we should probably ask. I and mean, it's probably
0: time for like one or maybe two questions quickly. We've got about five minutes left. Does anybody have any questions? Are we completely wrong about everything? I think I think <laughs> that hasn't happened for. Well, then I I think probably the appropriate thing to do is to ask you all to help us thank Michael Swanwick and Kids Johnson for joining us today. It has been a joy and a pleasure and one of the best podcasts we've had.
2: One of the best discussions of a story I've ever heard. And we'd we'd also
0: like to...
1: no there were no 19-year-olds in it. That helps. We'd also like to especially thank the team at MidAmerican
0: 2 who have recorded this for us. We're very grateful for all of their support, Cathy Overton and her team. And we'd like to thank you all for coming. And this will be out in the world in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much.
3: Thank Thank you. you.